Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This episode of Rodinka, we talk about sledging with someone who just wrote an entire history of it in sport. My name is Rafi Cohen. I'm the author of Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage. We talk about cricket sledging compared to trash talk in other sports, the Australian team, basketball, why sledging can work, the science behind it, Phil Hughes' inquest, and how the spirit of cricket and sledging coexist. I want to be the only podcast you go on that doesn't start by slagging you off, um, just because I'm assuming that would be a running joke. Every time you have to do a radio thing, you've got some DJ having a go at you. But I do want to say that you you, you start your book with Americans think of cricket as a genteel game for its white sweated uniforms and breaks for tea when it's actually riddled with trash talk or what they call sledging. So my question to you is, how did you work that out? Because... Cricket still hasn't really come into the mainstream in America. There's, you know, occasionally flare-ups and John Oliver will make a joke about it. And obviously Aaron Sorkin uses it as a punchline occasionally. How did you work out that cricket was a trash-talking game? Yeah, it's kind of like the world's worst-kept secret <laughs> <laughs> that, that that cricket is, is in fact riddled with trash talk. Uh, the way I came across it is simply because you know, as I was reporting this book, I wanted to kind of attack the topic of trash talk from as many angles as I possibly could. Of course, I wanted to explore, you know, what that means in sports and look at it from kind of like a historical and cultural perspective within the U.S., but also think about it from a science and psychological perspective and think about it from a moral, philosophical and ethics perspective. And so it was, in fact, um, a conversation with a moral philosopher named Nick Dixon, who is anti-trash talk. Uh, it was one of my early conversations. Uh, and he he sort of, you know, he hit me to the fact that, you know, cricket is actually a tremendous sport, you know, in which to explore trash talk. And this sort of uh, Australia versus England uh, history, you know, presents a really terrific case study of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know, so you reached out, I know Mark Butcher's in the book, Tim Wigmore, Mo Babbitt, myself. So there's, you, you talked to a few people in cricket. I know we tried to get you out, an Australian who was a sledger, but uh, p- perhaps they didn't quite want to speak up about that, which is funny, of course, being that they are happy to speak up on the field. But um, you focus in the book quite a bit on that Australian 90s to 2000 mental disintegration, Steve War um, style of, of sledging, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I was genuinely fascinated by it. If I could have, I would have written a whole book about uh, just that time period. And honestly, in in large part because of, you know, uh, the generosity of of time and knowledge that folks like yourself shared with me, uh, I, you know, 
understanding trash talk, I think in any culture requires context. And within Australia in particular, you know, once you start looking at where that Steve Waugh and, you know, squad of mental disintegrators come from, you know, you start to look back into the 1970s, right? And the, as you described it to me, I think this kind of like ACDC, you know, <laughs> machismo, um, you know, hyper aggressive, uh, you know, style of cricket, which kind of splashed onto the world stage in a way that was really unexpected, you know, compared to what had come before it and therefore very bracing for a lot of folks. But within Australia itself, the way in which this was actually an earnest expression of culture, right? That sledging, you know, taking the piss out of one another was a kind of culturally approved activity within Australia. And in the same way or in a similar way that kind of trash talk in the 1990s in the United States, when we kind of, you know, created this phenomenon around trash talk, you know, started assigning trend stories around it was actually, you know, the expression of, you know, of, of, of an ev evolution of black oral traditions like the dozens that were then, you know, sort of further honed during the early days of hip hop and on playground basketball courts. Like it was an actual cultural expression sort of meeting, you know, uh, a sporting public that didn't know how to understand it. Uh, so I, I loved that in particular because I think there's so much to that, you know, and I know that, you know, in any in any case, things can get out of hand and lines can be crossed. And I'm sure I mean, that's something we may discuss. But but it's but I think sledging in cricket is, is absolutely fascinating. I wish more people would write about it. Well, one thing I found interesting, we'll, we'll, we'll go into sledging in a moment. But one thing I found very interesting is that it really does feel like the mid 90s is a time when it kind of like cricket and basketball take it to a whole different level. And we know that if you, I suppose if you go back and, and you probably talk about um, some of these things in your book, but you know, Muhammad Ali and, and that sort of boxing tradition and everything else, but cricket and basketball were quite physical in the sort of seventies and eighties. And, you know, you had people like Larry Bird and Ian Chappell who were more than happy to, to say things, but it's by the nineties, it becomes almost a defining characteristic. Like I think of, you know, think of Reggie Miller who, is obviously mentioned in your book and you know a uh, huge uh, thanks to you for mentioning me in the acknowledgement acknowledgements next to um cheryl miller uh you know so i could send it back to my, my uh, basketball friends they're very excited with all that but but you know you that that 90s sort of period you know maybe when uh, you know the blood in the garden nicks era and all those sorts of things you know off the back of what you know detroit and everything bring into basketball and then you've got the the australian cricket team and everything else I suppose looking back, what it's really talking about is a changing in the generations and the people who are running the sport, the most important people. So, you know, basketball had been, you know, a little bit more of a suburban sport with black players who were there, but obviously were quite often pushed to the side. And cricket had been an English sport where Australians were allowed to be there, but they weren't necessarily the most important things. And then suddenly you had this clash of black culture and Australian yeah. cricket culture coming in. And it's really, they are so, I mean, they are so alien to the way that those sports were thought of and played in previous eras. But once you become the best, you kind of dictate how things are done a little bit, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially, you know, this sort of clash of sensibilities, this clash of cultures, I think it's, it's in a, you know, sledging trash talk is inextricable from that conversation because, you know, within, um, you know, within black basketball, you know, starting in the 1970s and into 80, into the eighties and to the nineties, you know, trash talk can be seen as a kind of assertion of cultural identity, right? Where com one is competing on one's own terms and, you know, competing in the way that you learn to compete. You know, Gary Payton grew up talking trash. Like if he's, he's not putting on a show, he's doing, mm -hmm. you know, he's doing what he was tr effectively trained to do. And so I think, you know, what's interesting about you know, the 90s in particular, in terms of both sort of Australia taking the stage and black basketball players, you know, really, yeah, may, I mean, I think I think certainly you can make the case that, you know, back 
black basketball players had already asserted a kind of dominance over the... Uh, they had, but if you think yeah. back to the 80s, there were still the cocaine bands and, yeah, you know, right. all, all that. So, so I, I think they, they were clearly the better players. I don't think anyone is arguing that, but I, I don't think they'd taken over the cultural talk. If you go back to those old Converse ads with Magic and Larry... It's very different to what we see in that right. next generation, right? Right. And, well, there was major pushback, right? And there was major pushback from the leagues, from the, you know, those who controlled sort of the marketing dollars because it was seen as a threat. It was just seen as a threat you know, or a potential threat to viewership and, you know, and then therefore the business concerns of, of the league. Whereas what happens in the 90s is that there's more of, you know, well, uh, there's two things happening. One is that there's actually you know, penalization of players for, you know, for bringing this kind of, you know, bravado yeah. and confidence and, you know, confrontational verbal gamesmanship onto the court. But at the same time, an appropriation of that same kind of cultural signifiers from, from a marketing perspective. And so there is a shift in that sense, I mm-hmm. think, where the league is on one hand trying to say, we're a black league, but on the other hand, trying to say, but not too black, you know, like there's, there's a fine line that, that they believe that they need to walk in that sense. And you see that with cricket as well. You see the sort of, oh, the Australians are coming to town and they, you know, I remember when a couple of years ago, when Australia toured India, they had a whole campaign called Bully the Bully. Right. Right. And, and you're just like, well, wait, are we now commodifying that thing that for generations we were told wasn't right and shouldn't be allowed? And, and that is what has happened. Like eventually it becomes the thing that you market, you know, and, and it, it very much changes. From a cricket perspective, um, it, it, it always, uh, because I grew up with cricket and basketball being, you know, two huge sports in my life, I always thought that they were almost indis- they were almost both made for trash talk. It's very hard to trash talk in, in tennis. I used to try and it, it's just not an easy thing. You're quite often you're 20 meters away from someone there, you know, put a towel on their face, walk into the other end. You're trying to get something at them. It doesn't make any sense. Whereas in basketball, it's really simple. You take a rebound, you try and find the guy who's t- taken the shot and just have a little jibe at him. But cricket is almost unique in the fact that you have this sport where you have two players are out in the middle who for, with one mistake, everything can go um, to yeah. shoot with so they can't yeah. say much back because if they do and two minutes later they're out they look like idiots and then you have essentially 11 bullies around them who are trying to get into their concentration bubble who are trying to put them off there aren't many sports that are better set up for that kind of um you know those i don't want to get too steve or but those kind of mental attacks than cricket is absolutely i mean i think what makes cricket fascinating, uh, again, from you know from that sledging and psychological gamesmanship perspective, is that so when we think about what trash talk is trying to do, you know, or what a trash talker is trying to do, the various potential applications of it, and you know, the, uh, you know, the, and you won't see all of them necessarily on the uh, you know, you know, on the field at the same time. You know, you don't need Conor McGregor to be you know his at his showmanship best when he's in the middle of the fighting cage, right? Then he's trying to win a fight. Um, but right, it, during like during the actual cricket match, the idea of using sledging or trash talk to, for example, uh, you know, raise the pressure on another person's performance, right? To increase the stakes. And that sort of fun, is like one of the fundamental ideas of trash talk is that at its core, it is the presentation of a challenge. You are suggesting to the person to whom you are talking trash that they cannot handle it, that they do not have what it takes to succeed. And that, you know, inherently, it puts more on the line, right? It raises the ante of competition. You as the talker have more to gain. You know, if you look, if you succeed, you look even better. And there's also, you also have more to lose if you can't, you know, if you can't back it up. So, and what that does when you're presenting a challenge, when you, when you raise the pressure, you're increasing potentially the anxiety levels of the person, you know, to, again, to whom you're talking trash and without getting too, too scientific and nerdy about it, there, there are, you know, sports psych, psychology, there are models in sports psychology that speak to things like, you know, optimal, optimal levels of arousal, right? Optimal levels of internal physiological cognitive arousal. Where do you need to be to perform at your best? 
And if you're able to use trash talk to increase the stress on a player to make them think about the things that they have to lose, you know, to make them think that maybe they don't belong, and suddenly your anxiety starts to rise beyond the level at which you'll perform your best, it starts to become dysfunctional and you can and, and, you, and your performance will deteriorate. Or you can try to distract someone, you know, simple, you know, cognitive distraction. Um by being unexpected, by doing something weird, by just being insulting and making someone angry or mad in a way that takes away from the thing that they should be focusing on. And in cricket, when we're talking about, especially, uh, you know, especially when you're, you know, you can be out there for, I'm not a cricket expert, so if I get anything wrong, you got to correct me. But it's red ball cricket when you can be out there, you know, batting for hours at a time, if not more than a day, and a single mistake you know, can, you know, can basically, you know, demolish your chances and your team's chances. The level of mental stamina required is astronomical, right? And so the upside of sledging, causing potential distraction, of deteriorating someone's performance, even marginally, is tremendous. You know, the, the upside is obvious. And, Basically, regardless of the of the intent or, you know, you know, whatever avenue, whatever mechanism is at play or that, you know, you know, to when you are talking trash, the answer to trash talk is always the same. And when I say that, it's, it doesn't mean that there's a simple answer in terms of, well, ignore it. Well, do this. We'll do that. The answer is mental toughness. The answer is to respond in the and that is to respond in the appropriate way. And that is kind of the definition of mental toughness is regardless of the perceived stakes of a situation, regardless of possible distraction, regardless of anything else that might be going on, having the wherewithal to focus on the thing that you can control, to focus on the thing that's within, you know, that is task relevant at the time. And so that's when you hear people say, oh, he was mentally weak, you know, or even we're mentally disintegrating this person. It sounds, you know, like over the top, but it's not entirely wrong because if you're responding in the appropriate way, which may be ignoring it, which may be in fact using, you know, the insults and whatever to, you know, to up your own, to up your intensity level, to up your anxiety level, because, you know, you're, you're Draymond Green and that's what you need on the court or like Reggie Miller to use it. Or, in fact, like John McEnroe, you know, to use another tennis, you know, to bring it back to tennis, to actually use it as a psychological cue to remind yourself to engage in the task at hand. And so it can be used in a lot of ways. And I think cricket is just so isolating. For a team sport, it is so isolating. Mm. And, you know, when you think about why basketball makes sense versus tennis in terms of talking trash, you know, in tennis, yes, you don't have the, you know, the the one-on-one, you know, sort of in-your-face battles all the time. And that may that may sort of shield you from some insulting trash talk, some sorts of distracting provocations. But what it also requires is that you have a level of mental toughness to then reorient yourself, to block out potential distractions. You don't have a teammate. Yeah. Right. Who can slap you on the ass and then say, hey, man, let's go. Let's get this together. You know, which in basketball or in, you know, football, you know, American football or, in, you know, in English football, you know, you may have that opportunity. And and in cricket, you kind of have the worst of both mm. worlds. Right. Because you're being, you know, attacked in verbally attacked and potentially very close quarters by an entire other team without anyone around you to help you kind of focus in that moment. Remember that cricket is a funny game. hundred years before we protected our heads, players looked after their groins. So don't be as stupid as old cricketers and protect your computer today. NordVPN is the protection I use when facing cyber shortfalls or when rights issues try to dismiss me. NordVPN will help you get through the straight bat of any geo blocks so you can watch all the cricket you want. If you need your pitch changed, well, NordVPN can doctor any surface to a new location so that your IP address is set up for you to win. Want to buy an associate cricket shirt from a place that won't ship to your country? Select NordVPN. Want to watch a game on a free stream in another hemisphere? NordVPN. Or if you just want to watch a clip on social media that a cricket board won't allow you to, promote NordVPN to pinch it for you. So if you need a VPN, go Nord. 
Use nordvpn.com forward slash Kimber to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. The link is in the show notes. Protect your computer like a cricketer protects its nether region with NordVPN today. I want to get back to the science of it a little bit because you talked about this. I think it's really fascinating. I, I was someone that I was a terrible batter until someone started talking to me. The mm. minute they started talking to me, I would be like, oh, well, now I'm going to make runs, right? And I, I could feel it switching over. Same in yeah. basketball. You know, if someone started getting in my ear in basketball, I would, I would do it. And in, and in tennis, I was very much like McEnroe. I was yelling a lot. It was mostly for myself to get myself right. focused in. Psychologic, and, and you talked about people like Draymond Green. Steve Waugh is a perfect example. So ba- before Steve Waugh, batters didn't really pick fights with bowlers. But Steve Waugh clearly needed that stimulus to get him into it as well. And, you know, we have this thing in, in cricket, which, you, you know, you see a lot in basketball. There are certain players you don't talk to, right? You don't want to start them off. You just ignore them, let them do their yeah. thing. If they're good, if they're bad, it doesn't matter. You, know, you don't want to say anything to Michael Jordan because he will take whatever he can and, and then reuse it. What's the psychology behind all that, though? Like when you look at the science, how, you know, how, how, do we, how do we work out who is that person and who isn't that person? How does an athlete work out what works better for them? Yeah. Before, before I get to that, I want to ask you, so what, to the extent that you can remember, what was happening internally for yourself when someone started talking to you and you felt that, you felt that change, that kind of imperceptible involuntary change? Was it that you're you were feeling a kind of intensity in your body? Were you feeling more, you know, more concentration in your focus? What was the change? Yeah, I, I think specifically with my batting, I kind of floated through when I batted. A little bit, same in basketball and, and, and in batting. Like I, I would do everything that I needed to do, but I was, I was kind of just playing the game rather than being in the moment and, and playing the yeah. game. But once the words came in, everything just became a lot clearer to me. Okay, well, this person's going to do this, so now I need to do this. And it just felt like, and I I don't know how to explain it any better than that, but it just felt like I suddenly had a mission and the mission was really clear to me. Whereas before, you know, maybe in the second or third quarter of a basketball game and I'm going around and I'm just, you know, chipping in for a couple of rebounds, hitting a couple of open jumpers occasionally, but not really affecting the game. Whereas now someone said something and I'm playing the hardest defense I've ever played. You're not getting past me anymore. I'm going to be a disruptor, you know, on offensive rebounds, all those sorts of things. And I felt that it just, it's like suddenly the game became clearer to me because I had a real objective which was embarrass the one person who's just spoken to me right <laughs> which doesn't mean anything at all but but you know I, I remember a game when I was batting and I was batting at like number eight or number nine and I would have just gone in hit 20 or 30 and gone out and I got to about 20 odd and the opposition captain just started t- telling me I was a sled uh, I was a slogger and I wasn't any good and I was like I'm gonna make a hundred and he just looked at me and he's like what and I just went berserk and it was all based on on that I know I would have gone out otherwise so that there was a it's like the, the mission became clearer when there was something else on the line yeah so I think you're describing two ways in which that trash talk can um, can affect positively uh, affect performance uh, I'll describe a third before I get to those two which is what I was talking about before is this this model known as the individual zones of optimal functioning or ISOF in sports psychology. So the, you know, this model is, you know, it describes basically, you can imagine, you know, a kind of, you know, inverted U-shaped curve, but unlike the Yerkes-Dodson law, which, you know, which is a previous understanding of the relationship between anxiety and sport performance, you know, what that posited was that there is this inverted u-shaped curve and it is the same for everyone right and you need to find yourself to the sort of middle ground of anxiety not being too worked up not being too you know relaxed and that's where you're going to perform at your best in the eyes off model what it suggests is that this zone is in fact individual so for you know someone like you know, Kevin Garnett, or I would suggest perhaps based on your story yourself, uh, you know, that's going to be different athletes, we should say, but But nonetheless, exactly the same. Um, you know, that, that basically you need to be more worked up you needed to have a higher level of anxiety and that anxiety, you know, 
you know, we're describing, when I say anxiety, I'm not talking about like fear and worry, right? In the way we might commonly understand it. I'm describing it as a kind of, you know, the, you know, sympathetic arousal in your body, right? It's, it's heart rate and it's, you know, it's a, just like, you know, the, uh, you know, what's happening, it's what's happening in your mind and body that, you know, that may, um, you know, that may be higher for a player like Kevin Garnett than, than, than someone like, this is an easy example. I'll use it in the book. Someone like Tim Duncan, right. Who would very clearly be on a lower, on a lower end of the eyes off spectrum, right. He needs perhaps to have a clearer mind. He needs to have, you know, sort of a more, subdued level of physiological arousal but this it's not just arousal right it's also it can have cognitive components the eye, you know eyes off it can have emotional components you know I, this is pure speculation but think about someone like magic johnson right who is s- seemingly always competing with a smile on his face mm-hmm. perhaps he had a kind of happiness component to his you know individual zone of optimal functioning so long-winded way of saying that for some people like Kevin Garnett, talking trash, working themselves up into a kind of frenzy, attacking someone can be a way to make sure that they get to their own level of of individual zone of optimal functioning, while potentially also knocking someone out of their of their zone, which could have you know deleterious effects um, on their performance. No, no, sorry. What, continue, continue. Well, I was going to say the other two are uh, <laughs> attention, uh, attention and motivation would be the other two. And those are the ones that you were actually more, uh, more specifically describing. So attention, you know, the one way we can think about attention is a kind of like, as being a kind of funnel, right? And you can have wider bands of attention and you could have more narrow bands of attention. And when you have a higher state of arousal, you have a more narrow band of attention. And you can think that when you, you know, there'll be certain things within that band of attention, regardless of whichever state it is, where some things are task relevant, some things are task irrelevant, right? When you have a wider band of attention, you're taking in more things that are task irrelevant. That doesn't mean that having a more narrow band of attention is, is necessarily better. Right? It depends on what it is you're trying to do. What is the uh, what is the task you're trying to achieve? Good example of you know of illustrating this is you can think about a uh, an American football quarterback. Right, if he has a very narrow field of attention, he might miss up on some small he might miss out on some small cues like the safety creeping over, you know, in the secondary, or he might be so locked in on one receiver. He doesn't see someone who's wide open on the other side. You want to have this kind of open awareness and take in lots of information at the same time, someone in basketball going to the free throw line may want a more narrow band of attention, right? You don't want to take in all the heckling from the crowd or what someone's saying to you at the foul line. You want to be very focused on what the thing is that you're doing at that time. And so one way to get a more narrow band of attention, to to eliminate some of those task-irrelevant cues may be to work yourself up. And And if you work yourself up, by responding to trash talk that someone else is taking in, you may be zeroing in your focus. So you you described it right as having a kind of clarity and clarity of purpose in that way. Um, and I think so that would describe that kind of that that attentional mechanism of using trash talk as a cue to kind of engage. I think about Reggie Miller doing something like that. But then we also have motivation. And by the way, these things are all obviously like. You know, they're all they're all sort of woven together. Yeah. It's never like just one. Yeah, you don't have one. You have a combination. Yeah, yeah. it's all they're all operating together. Um, but motivation, right? There we there are people who can you know who are externally motivated and people who are internally motivated. But also, each of us probably have some degree of both external and in- internal motivation. And when it comes to sport in particular, when you look at a guy like Draymond Green who really craves that kind of trash talk, that kind of like emotional confrontation, what that does is it gives him motivation to play. It gives him a reason to play. Psychologists would tell you that's a suboptimal form of motivation because you're relying on an external stimulus to get you to that state. But at the same time, two things. One, a lot of people have a hard time ignoring Draymond Green, so it works pretty well for him, even if they know that it's not, you know, it's not in their best interest. And two, 
Something that people don't think about, sports fans don't think about, is that professional sports or people who compete at a high level of sports, for them, sports can kind of become tedious. It becomes boring, right? You need a reason to get yourself up every day. You know, Michael Jordan, right? Whatever you say, he's going to twist your words into some kind of like indignity or slight because that gives him a reason to compete at the highest level. Larry Bird would create these small challenges for himself. He would ask, well, what's the high score in this building? You know, he would want to, he would want to give him, or he, you know, trash talk on the court. He would tell you exactly what he's going to do. I'm going to dribble left. I'm going to pump fake right. I'm going to step through and I'm going to bank it in, you know, and I'll leave you two seconds on the clock. You know, he's creating these challenges and putting this pressure on himself because again, it's creating motivation. It's also perhaps raising his, you know, his arousal levels. And and you need that sometimes. You need a reason to get up to play. And so you, I would suggest, based on your story, were one of those guys that people would have been, would, you, know, you were best left alone. You know, you were, if you were going to go up and you were just going to kind of sleepwalk through your, you know, your time at bat, then that's exactly the wrong time to talk, right? You know, as much as we, as we should, you know, know when to talk or what to say and how these things operate, because I think any trash talker or any would-be trash talker can be significantly more effective and strategic if they actually understand what's really happening, mm. um, you know, psychologically and what is the performance, you know, what are the performance outcomes of these things. You have like just as important or even more important is who to not talk to and who to leave alone for exactly these same reasons. Thanks to the kind folks at FlexiSpot for looking after my office and my butt by sending me their E7 Pro Desk that save your favorite desk heights at a touch of a button. You don't have to crank anything. This thing just finds the height that you like and you can work. And their BS12 Pro Chair that supports my posterior while I'm recording, well, this ad and all my shows. If you need great desks, especially ones that change heights or the best quality chairs, head on over to FlexiSpot. The other thing that you talk about in the book is specifically what to say. And uh, in, the, in the chapter that Mo Babat's talking about, um, you know, and he's, a, he's an analyst who's worked with the English team and I think he's in the IPL at the moment. Um, but, you know, he's talking about essentially the best kind of trash talk is the one where you find the other person's inner voice. So to go back to your Draymond Green um, analogy, when Draymond Green punches Jordan Poole in the face, it's because Jordan Poole has essentially said what Draymond Green's biggest fear is that I think yeah. he, you think he uses the, the phrase, you're just a backpack for curry, right? Which is, you know, you, you're not that important. It just happens to be that the most important player in the world is on your side. That is what gets in Draymond Green's. Um, and it goes beyond, right? He goes beyond trash talk there and goes to actual yeah. violence. But that is because it goes to that inner voice. And, you know, we have, of course, the, the Shane Warne, Daryl Cullinan situation in cricket. And, uh, you know, one of the other famous ones is Kumar Sangakara talking to Sean Pollock about all the pressure that Sean Pollock is under when it comes out. Those are the ones where if you can, it's, you almost need to know a little bit about the opposition, right? You almost need to have like yeah. an education about the other person, which again, at professional level is much easier. If you're playing, if you're playing a pickup game against someone or a tennis game against some casual person, you're not going to know any of that. But these professionals, they hear things and they use little snippets to try and get in the head of someone else, right? Absolutely. And that's the Draymond Green, Jordan Poole example. I, I find, I find Draymond Green endlessly fascinating. And it's not just because he is an expert trash talker, which I think he is, but he also demonstrates these moments of extreme mental weakness. Mm. And I will, I would, you know, I would never say that. To <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but, but I mean, look, when you are responding in that way, responding with violence, like you are not handling what is being said, right? You are not mm. responding in the appropriate way. You know, a challenge has been presented and a very personal and degrading challenge. But I mean, is that beyond, you know, the pale of anything that Draymond Green has ever said? I'm sure not. You know, the other example I would give of, of Draymond demonstrating mental weakness, and he overcame it, was in the NBA Finals two years ago against the Golden against the, the Boston Celtics. Uh, perhaps you remember when he just refused to take a shot. Yeah. He basically looked like Ben Simmons out there for a couple of games. And it was startling because 
one of the one of the sort of hallmarks of mental toughness or one of the ways you you know, can can sort of build a kind of mental toughness is or an important sort of aspect of it is this idea of not being afraid to fail right you can't worry about whether you're going to miss the jump shot if it's the right shot you take it anyway mm-hmm. you can't worry about looking silly you just do the thing you're supposed to do because if you start worrying about whether you're going to fail or whether you're going to be looking silly you're distracting yourself you're not foc- you're not focusing on the task at hand in the way that you should be and so when Draymond started to clearly worry about missing a shot, clearly worry, maybe if not how he's being perceived, but he, the taunts were getting to him in one form or another, that's a kind of mental weakness. That doesn't mean that you can't then overcome that. He did. You, you know, when, you, when you're confronted with a kind of weakness or vulnerability, it's an opportunity to get stronger. We all fail. It happens. So whether you can, you know, whether you can become uh, you know, stronger as a result of that you know, is the question. Um, with uh yeah with you know with you know Draymond and and Jordan Poole you know he said the thing that obviously must have been eating at him and he had some mental weakness about it and when Mo Bobat says yeah say the thing that your inner voice is already whispering at you because maybe it'll start shouting it at you what that's talking about is feeding kind a kind of self doubt yeah. and self doubt is just insidious. So that's where we start to worry about things, whether we have the ability to succeed or not, right? And that gets into ideas of self-efficacy. And that's basically, basically all that describes is like your, your belief in your ability to succeed at a given task or not. And if you do not believe that you can succeed, you're almost assuredly going to enter what's known as a threat state. Versus a challenge state, and that has physiological, you know, downstream outcomes. You know, your your heart rate will still be beating fast. Um, you know, your breathing will increase, but your pulmonary vasculature constricts instead of expands. Right, your blood is rushing to the center of your body instead of instead of going, uh, you know, going to your limbs. You're preparing for damage and for being attacked instead of preparing for action. Right, that's what's at stake when we start talking about self doubt and self efficacy. And so absolutely, if you can say something that someone has a genuine insecurity about or create an insecurity, that is a tremendously effective way to talk trash. One of my uh, favorite stories from the book is when um, B.J. Armstrong, former uh, point guard you know, on the Jordan Bulls, <clears throat> at the end of a blowout win or loss didn't really matter when the coaches would empty the benches and they would take, you know, the scrubs would, would basically come into the game. He would intentionally foul someone from the opposing team who was like the 11th or 12th man on the bench and in theory could have been concerned about his place on the roster and therefore, you know, his you know, those, those that's a material concern, whether he's going to have a living going forward. And he would say, now go get your average. And what he meant by that is that this person played so little and was so unimportant to his team that all he needed was one or two free throws to you know to you know, to match his scoring average and what he would look for was not just it wasn't just saying that he was looking for the response the response is everything did the person get defensive and angry and upset because if they did then you knew that that was someone you could attack mm. and if not then it was someone to leave alone but but going after those things is critical and you may not always know what it is even if you do have the benefit of kind of you know 24 hour seven day a week, uh, you know, sports coverage. Sometimes you might have to do a little bit of digging, uh, which was why I actually really enjoyed exploring things like, uh, you know, comedy roast battles because they have this set period beforehand when they do weeks or if not months of research into who this person is, what is the thing that you're going to be, you know, insecure about? What's the thing that's going to make you upset that you don't want me to say? And that's not, that's not something that you that's uh that's unheard of in sport. You know, John Randall, who's not in the book, but you know, I loved this about him. He's a former defensive lineman, you know, famously of the Minnesota Vikings. He would this was pre-internet. He would do all kinds of research into his opposing, you know, into opposing players every week. He would want to know did you get a DUI in the off season? You know, did you have any surgeries? What's your wife's name? What's your, you know, what are your parents' names? All these kinds of things, because that was the in-game fodder for him. And even going further back than that, there's a baseball manager 
John McGraw, a famous baseball manager, who would literally hire private detectives <laughs> to get fodder on opposing players because, you know, you know, we, we can talk about the psychological mechanisms at play, but we just know this kind of intuitively, mm. that if I can find the thing that you're, that you're insecure about and you haven't come to terms with it in some way, which, you know, again, speaks to another path toward mental toughness is confronting your own insecurities and weaknesses, then you're going to be vulnerable to attack. So um, I think I've talked about this before, but I, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine was playing county cricket and he was going up against another friend of mine. And he said, do you mind writing some sledges for, for the game? So the bowler was Jack Chantry and the batter was Eddie Cowan. And one of them was that Eddie Cowan had a book out and it had been edited by, a, a, you know, probably the, the most famous cricket author. And there was a lot of people going around saying that he had written it, not that Eddie had written it. And so in the middle of this game, this weird little thing came up. And he, he was more shocked that this random bowler who he'd never met before had this internet take on his career. And he, I was talking to him about it afterwards. He goes, it's not that the sledge pulled me off. It's not like I suddenly went, how dare he say that about my book or anything like that. But it just, for a moment, it, was, it took him out of the bubble of where he was. So even a little thing like that, any, any way that you can do it, um, I think it's really interesting. I want to go back to something you said about Draymond Green because I think it'll take us into the sort of the, the final bit about all this. Draymond Green is very much rem reminds me of Australian cricket, which is they will go as hard as possible, go as hard as possible, go as hard as possible. And then if you go as hard as possible back at them, they will decide that you've crossed the line and that they will explode from it. And we've seen him do that time and time again. And certainly we've seen that with Australian cricket. And I know you mentioned it in the book, um, is, is the cultural differences. So we've seen a couple of times in Australian cricket where a player has been attacked on the field because of a dying wife, a dying mother, a sick mother, you know, something going on in their family life and the opposition's had a go at them and they've gone, whoa, whoa, how could you go that far? Almost ignoring all the stuff that they have said beforehand. And, and the thing that you talk about in the book is you actually talk about it through the eyes of the spirit of cricket, which, which is, which is quite interesting uh, because, you know, it's not a phrase that Americans know, but sportsmanship, of course, but it's, we, we almost religious, make it religious in cricket by adding the spirit of cricket side of it. But you talk about it in the way that I think a lot of us now talk about it, which is, I'm just going to read this out. You say, the problem with sportsmanship is that it has always been an imperfect concept. Much like the spirit of cricket, it lacks the objective measures. Instead, many of the professed values of sportsmanship, things like humility, are often vague, um, discretionary, and culturally relative. Um, and you, you talk... That's the thing that we've been trying to explain to people who use the spirit of cricket for everything in, in a long period of time. And those two things are both linked, even though they're either in the the spectrum one is how far you can push the line until you make an Australian upset, and the other one is can you say anything that will make no one upset? And in 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 you know in sports like football and soccer, I should say for you, but um, and cricket, which are so international and so many different cultural identities, there's no way that sportsmanship or spirit of cricket could ever actually encompass all those different things. And so, just the there are some there are some parts of I'm sure there are European basketball cultures that don't like trash talk in the same way that there are cricket cultures that don't like sledging because that's not where they come from. Yeah. It's, it's one of the more fascinating, um, uh, you know, conversations when it comes to trash talk and especially so, as you said, in, in these, in these sports that, that encompass so many different cultures or that have grown to encompass so many different cultures. And, I think one thing that we need to state and understand outright is that ideas like sportsmanship, ideas like the spirit of cricket, you know, are effectively not, they're not useful because it is, it is so culturally relative, right? And so they're reflections of the people who make the rules that reflect, it's a reflection of the person who's trying to draw their own personal line. But it's not actually useful in terms of having a conversation around it. You know, much more useful would be, and, and actually talking about the spirit of cricket in particular, right? Where there's this there's this idea that everything needs to somehow you know fall in line and under the umbrella of what is and has always been a spirit of cricket, and 
in addition to the fact that again, you know, nobody's going to agree what is the spirit, what is what is the spirit, because the spirit of cricket in one place will be very different than it is in another. You know, right in Australia, the spirit of of cricket is sledging mercilessly, or at least used to be. Whereas somewhere else, it could be the exact opposite. The point being that, in addition to that, that cricket has never been, no sport has ever been what it remembers itself to be, right? No, we all we, we want to hold it up on a pedestal and say, this is what the spirit is. But that, in fact, was never actually the case. And so a much more useful discussion, much more useful argument is not, here's what the spirit of cricket is and what it has always been. But what do we want it to be and how can we kind of collectively construct that, uh, right? What is what is right or wrong as we sort of now conceive of it? Not does this somehow match up to what our perception of what a spirit you know, of a sport has been or what sportsmanship might be. And that needs to accommodate for a wide variety of cultures. You know, when our lines, when our cultural differences come into conflict, you know, I think some of that is okay. You know, like it's, I think, I think those are opportunities for someone to get upset, right? To throw a chair or a punch to have, but that's recourse, you know? And then when, when those blowups happen, then we have the opportunity, right? To have a discussion about that. Why did it cross the line? Is it, is it in fact too far? And it's a chance to then short, sort of shift the norms. And unless we're going to have, you know, the um, unless we're going to accept that these legislating bodies can just impose what they want onto sport in terms of, you know, the rules of engagement when it comes to, you know, these kind of extracurricular activities, we have to allow for some evolution and for a little bit of give and take for the players themselves to help construct what these norms are. Right. And if Australia is going to push the line again and again and again until somebody punches back and then they say, whoa, you've crossed the line. I mean, obviously they are gaslighting and we know this, <laughs> but, but at the same time, then, you know, we can have a discussion about, you know, what is or, you know, what is or isn't across, you know, going across the line. What do or do we not want to accept? Um, I mean, I do reject that argument as disingenuous. And I would also say, that frankly, you can't tell someone that I can be as abusive as I want to be and you can't take offense. That's not something you can say. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that being offensive isn't potentially an acceptable strategy. But let's have a discussion about that, right? Like if we're going to accept that we can say these sorts of things, then let's have that discussion. It can't just be well, you have your cultural, you know, your cultural lines, but what's accepted and what's not, you know, can't talk about family, can't talk about your wife, but I can talk about, I can ask you how, you know, you know, Brian Lair's dick tastes, you know, that's, you know, that's an example I'm aware of. <laughs> that, no, <laughs> you, know? that, you, you nailed that one. That, that was one yeah. of the ones, that was one of the ones in my mind of it's, uh, you know, it's more than fine to suggest that the other player is homosexual and that they're in an affair with someone else, but you can't then mention your wife. It's like, it, it's such a, that's what I mean. It's such a weird sort of, I don't want to even say gray area. It's just, you know, once you open the trash talk, um, yeah. that side of thing, it's like you, you, only when you get angry is when it's gone too far. And, and at that stage, it, it's already gone to a whole other level. It, one thing that you talked about, which I thought was really interesting in the book, you didn't go massively into, uh, into, into depth with it, but you talked about the fact that Phil Hughes, before he was um, struck by the bouncer and was ultimately killed by that ball, was being sledged. And we know that for a fact. Some of that has come out. You know, I've talked to players involved. And... and and you would expect that. I think you talk about um, in the book how, you know, in fast bowl, it's, a lot of sledging is around fast bowling, right? You know, you yeah. might sledge with spinners because you have the fielders close, but it's the fast bowls when you're actually trying to hurt someone when usually the, the, the stuff yeah. comes out. But the interesting thing that the sort of the, the judgment and the coroner make out of the, all that is that is the, was the sledging only thought to be bad because Phil Hughes died rather yeah. than the fact that, like, if Phil Hughes hadn't have died and had, had a great recovery from it, no one would have ever mentioned that sledging as being a problem ever again. And it's that, yeah. that, that I found that really, really interesting because there's so many parts of sport that you could make a similar kind of case for. Like you can go to CTE, you know, with, with the NFL and even cricket and other sports now that are having trouble with concussion. 
really until something until something explodes like that in sport, we will kind of let those things happen as much as possible. Like one day we both know yeah. ice hockey players will not be able to chuck their gloves down and punch each other in the face, right? Like that's just, it's just not going to happen forever. Like ice hockey fans can fight for that as long as they want. One day that is going to stop and we're all going to look back and go, why did we allow that to happen? And the Phil Hughes one I thought was a really interesting um, a moment of that because it, it, if it really is only punctuated by the fact that he happened to be hit in the wrong part of the head and, and obviously that led to, to his death. Um, what did you think about that, you know, looking, I, I know you looked around that case a little bit and, and did some research on that as well. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis, but Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Ecukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and I think, again, one of the things that, it, it, you know, this goes back to your previous question as well, but, you know, one of the things that that points to, that, you know, it comes from a section in the book where, where what I'm really talking about is the impossibility of actually ever drawing a line. Yeah. If we want to say, you know, that these sorts of things are allowed, we have to understand, which is why I was saying that, you know, the fights and throwing chairs is not some, I mean, obviously we don't want to condone it entirely, but we have to allow for it on some level because we have to understand that these lines are never going to be aligned, right? <clears throat> what you find offensive and violent worthy, you know, uh, you know, antagonism, I might think is totally par for the course. And, the reason why I, you know, that I found that, you know, that example so interesting, in addition to, right, the, the, you know, in addition to the fact that like it does sort of have these very, you know, these these very obvious corollaries in other sports, is that one of the things that that I found where people were very clear about drawing a line was in combat sports and this idea of sort of threatening death, right, saying you're coming out in a body bag, you're a corpse, you're dead tomorrow night. And obviously not everybody drew a line there. There's, you know, Conor McGregor is an example that I give, but there've been lots of other fighters who use that exact same, you know, um, that exact same tone, that exact same tactic, you know, um, but a lot of fighters would say that's totally unacceptable because that's actually possible. Yeah. <laughs> like I might actually die like that it, it happens it, you know fighters have died in the ring and so you're suggesting something that you know we know is not fictitious we know is not just pure psychological gamesmanship but it you know is in, in introducing a level of potential malice that i find you know not just offensive but like morally disgusting mm -hmm. and so i think with the phil hughes example and what the coroner says is this interesting you know or potentially interesting inflection point where it's like, okay, is there a line between psychological abuse and verbal games and psychological gamesmanship and verbal gamesmanship? Because, you know, verbal abuse, psychological abuse, I mean, has serious outcomes, you know, within our, within our bodies and within our worlds beyond the action, you know, the sport, you know, the confines of sport. You know, it's been shown that verbal abuse actually, you know, takes more of a toll on your body than physical abuse. Like, the, like this is a real phenomenon, right? And these psychological wounds, these, these, you know, this abuse is something we'll also take with us off the field as well, right? If I feel abused, you know, I will, that will have, 
ramifications and you know in my relationship at home with my friends you know maybe the way i interact politically the way i interact you know civically and on a societal level so are there certain things that we should just not accept because the wider fallout is unacceptable societally and that's you know when we start talking about certain types of incivility and now that we can see you know especially you know <laughs> you know, on the internet and as our political leaders are, you know, reaching new levels of, you know, noxious toxicity, you know, we understand that there is real fallout from this stuff. And I think we can kind of backtrack from that and look at sport as well and ask those same kinds of questions, especially as we're reaching this era of modernity in sport, technological modernity, where we are intruding on the game in a way that we have never intruded on it before. Thanks to things like stump mics, right? Thanks mm-hmm. to you know more powerful cameras. Thanks to everyone holding a, a a smartphone, you know, in their hand, and we're capturing things that we never would have captured before. You know, the unwritten rule of trash talk forever was that what happens on the field stays on the field. That has never been less true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's so I do think that is you know if we're going to have that discussion, we need to have that discussion at a societal level. And then we can kind of, you know, include, you know, include sport within that, because I don't think it's fair to say you can't have anything. You can't have verbal gamesmanship. You can't have psychological needling in some way. Right. Because that's an aspect of competition. Like, I don't want to lose to you if you're a mentally inferior opponent just because we didn't engage on that level in addition to engaging on a physical level. So I do think there is a conversation to be had there, but I think we need to be really clear about how we're having it. Yeah, I mean, and also just you can't stop certain things. You talked about, you know, one of my favorite basketballers, Jalen Rose, getting a tech from a, from a ref for smiling. You know, you've got the, in, in basketball, you've got the too small thing. You know, th- there are little things that you do, you, you can do in cricket, um, you know, that aren't, aren't always verbal, but are just exactly the same. Um, let's finish up here. My last question for you is, after all of this research, I've, I've got your book here, after everything um, everything you've put in here and you've done, you, I mean, this is the entire history of, of trash talk and sledging in sport, which is fantastic that this now exists as a thing. But who is your favorite uh, trash talker of all time? Oh, man, it is such a good question. And it's, I always, I always, I, I, so I fight two instincts here. One is to just like immediately say Muhammad Ali because, because mm. it's like he is, he is the greatest. And not just because he told us he was the greatest. It's because, you know, he, and, you know, he represented this kind of, you know, this brand of modern American trash talk that, you know, and brought it to, a wider and bigger stage than anyone had before while demonstrated demonstrating all of the various functionalities of trash talk, right? From, from being a showman and hyping up his, his matches to earning fights that folks maybe thought he didn't deserve to, you know, motivating himself by increasing the pressure on his training camps, by inviting reporters and fans to come watch to also trying to worm his way inside the minds of opponents. I mean, he was, basically doing everything. And I think that's unique to combat sports because you have the opportunity Mm. to do that in a way that you don't in others. So that's my initial, you know, just like straight out of the straight out of the box answer. And it's not wrong, but at the same time, like I love Gary Payton, man. Like just this guy who, you know, trash talk was in his genes it was part of who he was it was the air he breathed he would literally talk trash when he was practicing in the gym by himself you know we talk about the kind of self-motivation and getting to this you know peak performance state you know this kind of this psychological aspect this verbal aspect was just you know it was just baked into who he was as a person you know as a result of you know his competitive upbringing and i love everything about about Gary Payton from his intensity, the fact that he would never stop talking, you know, know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, from his former teammate, Michael Cage, who said after you played against him or even practiced with him, like you just wanted to go find a library, (laughs) you know, you wanted to find somewhere totally silent, but it's also that what I, and this is true for Ali too, I'll say, is that Gary Payton had his own logic system when it came to talking trash. 
He was engaging on his terms, not just because if you talk to him, you know, you were giving him like the quote unquote fuel that he needed, you know, to play at his best. But even if you were beating him, he was going to tell you how he was actually winning. Right. He, like if you scored on him, he'd be like, oh, man, that was lucky. I hope someone took a picture of that. You know, if Muhammad Ali, after he lost to, to Frazier in the first fight, he gets out of, uh, you know, he gets out of the hospital. He checks himself out of the hospital without even spending the night while Frazier, you know, you know, stayed weeks there convalescing and then used that to claim that he was the real winner, <laughs> even though, even though, you know, even though, you know, obviously Frazier was, you know, was the winner of the bout. So it's like having this kind of logic system, it's almost, you can think about it almost as like a rhetorical debate strategy. Whereas like, if you're going to engage on my terms, you have no chance of winning. And I just have so much respect, frankly, for like the, the level of, of, of rhetorical intellect and creativity that's required to do that. You know, I think we think about trash talk as being this incredibly aggressive, you know, confrontational, um, you know, almost kind of like primal thing. And I think that devalues, you know, all of you know, or the, the totality of what's happening in terms of the gamesmanship, in terms of the creativity, in terms of the intelligence that's on display when you see guys engaging in this way. So I just wanted to call that out too, um, because I think I think G, GP deserves our respect. Uh, well, he's also breeding trash talkers now, which I think is another level um, when, you, when you're actually having them uh, as children. The, the one thing I was going to say is when you brought up Muhammad Ali, and I brought him up earlier as well, Yeah, we both talked about the 90s and 2000s as being a very important time for trash talking and sledging and you know going to another level. When We Were Kings comes out in 1996. And I think for a big generation of kids who were probably already a little bit more used to sledging and cricket and, and trash talking and basketball and little bits in boxing and everything else, When We're the Kings is probably the biggest documentary culturally maybe of all time, right? Like as in we, documentaries just weren't big before that. You know, I know Bowling for Columbine yeah. comes out around that time and, you know, uh, Blackfish and it, there's a few big documentaries. But When We Were Kings was like every guy I knew who'd never seen a documentary had seen When We Were Kings. And, right. and we suddenly, that whole movie is really about, it's up until the end of that movie is more about the, the, not just the trash talking, but the, you know, the hype and everything else that Muhammad Ali has. And, you know, Norman Mailer talking about what he does to hype himself up in the change room on bad days and all these sorts of things. I do think that does play a, a big impact. Um, for, for me, I think I showed my wife, my wife doesn't like basketball or is, you know, generally uninterested in the sport, but I showed my wife the Reggie Miller Spike Lee documentary that 30 for 30 mm -hmm. did. And like, she'll, she'll know who R Reggie Miller is for the rest of her life. And I, like, I grew up with that series, you know, uh, we couldn't believe it. That, that for me was like the most cricket anything ever felt. We have one guy, all the pressure was on him. And like New York chirping around him through right. through a famous person, and Spike and and Spike, the more he went at Reggie, the better Reggie got in that series. Right. So I, that those are the ones that for me um, that that really really um, come out. But man, here's your book. It's a beautiful cover. You've done very well um, uh, with that. And uh, you know, uh, there, no sledging about the cover, no trash talk about the book. I thought it was top quality. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are also many other extras as well, including a Discord channel where you can chat to me directly. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. We are an independent podcast, so support us any way you can. Maybe give us a review, subscribe, or share on social media. All of these things help us. And when it comes to podcasts, word of mouth is always the best way of making it grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Baron Kazi and Estelle Vassadavan. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston, and each episode is produced by Ishit Kaburka at Sound Potion Studio. Mukunda Bandredi, or Muku as most people will know, is the head of our YouTube channels, and he also helps out with so many other things like the podcast recordings. And there's so many other people we could thank here, but I just want to thank all the listeners and all the people who help behind the scenes that make this podcast work. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today.
I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.